Hi, my name is Malcolm Duncan and I want to thank you for stopping by the Thin Places podcast. Whether you're exploring faith or seeking to deepen your faith, my prayer is that as you listen, it will be a blessing to you. Please make sure that you click or subscribe to the podcast to be kept up to speed with all the latest episodes. I'd love you to take a look at some of my other resources that are available on the internet too. You can go to my Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash Rev Malcolm Duncan for daily updates and reflections. You can visit my webpage, malcolmduncan.co.uk, where you can order books and listen to some other resources and link to my written blog. And lastly, you can take a look at my YouTube channel, which has some videos of me speaking in various contexts and some biblical exposition, as well as some videos of me exploring contemporary topics and issues. Thanks very much for stopping by and I pray that God would richly bless you. This is episode three of the Good Grief series and is entitled Living with a Squatter, the unwanted and unwelcome nature of grief and loss and why it feels so alien to us. I didn't invite grief into my life. It arrived uninvited, unwelcomed and unwanted. Grief isn't a guest. It's not a visitor. It's not a friend that we have to welcome and find room for and allow to take up our lives. Grief is more like a squatter. It's a burglar. It breaks into our lives when we least want it and it's never welcome. It steals our hope. It tries to strangle our joy. I know in my own life, grief has felt sometimes like going away from home and coming back and finding that somebody has taken up residence and that no matter how much I try, I can't get rid of them. And just at the moment when you think you have sorted it, that you've got it under control, that you're managing it, it raises its head again because you hit an anniversary or a special day like Mother's Day or Father's Day or Christmas or a birthday and you are reminded that this thing is present in your life. Learning to live with it is not the same as welcoming it. Learning how to respond to it is not the same as accepting it and jumping into it. It's one of the reasons that I think Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's cycle of grief is sometimes not very helpful but I'll talk more about that a little later on in uh, the Good Grief series. Of course, it is also a very helpful picture because it shows us that there are different seasons, different parts of grief that we have to work our way through. How do we handle this squatter then? How do we cope with its presence in our lives? We need permission, first of all, to fight it, to resist it, to acknowledge that it isn't something that we welcome or want or embrace And I really think that sometimes the language that we can use around grief doesn't help with that. It's like in the Edwardian and Victorian eras when people died or were in grieving, they would send envelopes with black edging. Grief is like a black edged envelope sent to each of our lives. And we have to open it. We have to work out how to deal with it. We have to acknowledge that we didn't want it, that it's not welcome, it's not something that we want to embrace, but we we, we have to deal with it. And as a pastor, I have seen so many people 
get into difficulties with grief in the same way as some people get into difficulties with not paying their bills. They get letters that are red letter demands and they put them in a drawer and don't open them and think they'll deal with it later. So many people do that with grief. You can't do that. It doesn't help. It just builds up mental illness. It builds up fear. It builds up despair. It builds up depression. It builds up irritability. Somehow we've got to work out how we deal with it because the reality is that grief doesn't go away. And the words and the people that tell you that it does are either not living through it or not telling you the truth. I mentioned Elizabeth Kubler-Ross earlier on. Let me uh, just bring you a, a brief quote from one of the works that she and um, her colleague Ross did. The reality is that you will grieve forever. You will not get over the loss of a loved one. You will learn to live with it. You will heal and you will rebuild yourself around the loss you have suffered. You will be whole again, but you will never be the same. Nor should you be the same. Nor would you want to. That is so true. The problem is that so many of us have become grief illiterate. Ten years after the production of her first work on grief and loss, um, a lady called Maria Shriver was commenting on a 10th anniversary publication of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's work. And she described American society as grief illiterate. I think because she felt that they had sanitised grief, that they had made it somehow hidden and respectable. And that can be uh, really, really true in many of our lives. We can become grief illiterate. We don't like the idea of grief's ferocity. We want to soften it and change our relationship with it. So we call it a friend or a visitor or a guest. That might be easier in the short term, but it certainly doesn't help in the long term. I come from Northern Ireland where grief, I think, is less sanitised. There's still the tradition of seeing the body at home in the coffin. There's still the tradition of walking behind the deceased of standing at the graveside and carrying their body to the grave. Now, many people will have lots of different ideas about whether or not that's appropriate for children or for people that are vulnerable. I accept that. But I think it is a cultural response that is trying to sanitise death less. And sometimes when we sanitise death, we actually hide it. We run away from it. I think we do that because we fear it. And it's our way of managing our fear, managing our abhorrence. But I'm not sure it's the best thing to do. We think that if we can relate to death like a friend, then we'll survive it. If we can understand it as a visitor, then we can make room for it in our lives. But I'm not sure that it helps because we don't want to die. And we don't want those that we love to die. And we end up not being sure how we're going to cope with the fact that they do die. And I think that's why learning to understand grief as a squatter, as an invader, as an unwelcome presence in our lives doesn't mean that we have to um, fall apart in its presence, but it means that we can adopt a posture of resistance and of determination even when we feel most vulnerable and most broken by it. It strikes me that when death is a squatter, then we live with the antithesis of what it means to welcome it. Instead, we learn from it and we are changed by it but we don't allow it to be sanitized into our lives in a way that means that we just accept it 
I'm not sure acceptance is the word that I would use. I was really close to my mum as a little boy. There are lots of reasons for that that I don't want to go into now. But growing up, I often wondered how I would cope when she died. Well, eventually she did die in 2016. And her death was the last in a whole series of deaths that had hit our family. And for me, losing her was like losing a limb. In the latter years of our la- our relationship, our, our, our understanding of one another changed. But I dreaded losing her. And she died at a quarter past eleven one Saturday morning. I was actually taking a church weekend in Wiltshire at the time. I'd been running backwards and forwards to Northern Ireland almost every week for a number of years because I was living in Buckinghamshire when she died to see her and to see other people in the family. And it had only been a few days since I'd been with her. But when she died, I still confronted it with a sense of dread. I wanted her to die. I wanted her to go because her life had become so confined. But I didn't want to lose her. And when I received the call to say that she was gone, I was bereft. My dad had died in 2002 and that had almost destroyed me and destroyed my faith. But when my mum died, the strangest thing happened. I had a deep sense of relief that her suffering was over. But almost immediately I turned to Debbie, my wife, and I said, I'm an orphan now. I was 46 years old. And I had so much to be thankful for in my life, but it felt like I had been orphaned. I wanted to be able to brush my hand against my mum's cheek one last time. I wanted to be able to see her mischievous twinkling eyes. I wanted to tell her off for always needing to be the centre of attention. I wanted to hold her hand. And it struck me that I would never hear her voice again on earth. A voice that had scolded me, that had praised me, that had called me, had corrected me, had nurtured me, and it was gone. I wouldn't hear her laugh, I wouldn't see her cry. I wouldn't see her habit of mouthing words to songs, of nodding at the television screen, of sticking her tongue out when she was concentrating. They were all gone. So nobody's going to tell me that death or loss or grief are visitors. They're thieves. They steal our joy. They pillage our souls. They force themselves into our lives. And I hate them. I hate what they do to people. I hate what they do to families. I hate what they do to a person's hope. I hate the devastation that grief and sorrow and loss leave behind. And the sanitised and the softened language of grief doesn't help me deal with my grief most honestly. It uses gift paper to wrap up death when what is needed is a shroud. Every time I walk through sorrow and loss, either individually or as a pastor, I have to remind myself of why I resist these candy-coated images and why they sit so uncomfortably with me and why they should with you. It's because in the end I think they hinder our grief processes rather than helping them. And that roots into the reality that I think we weren't made for death. We were made for life. And that brings honesty. When we accept that we were made for life and therefore death is an invader, it somehow gives us the opportunity to be honest about what we're facing and to express ourselves in different language. I 
remember when my dad died in 2002 that I had this vague recollection of a poem that had I'd read some time before by Dylan Thomas. So when I got back to my study, I was living in Dorset at the time, I, I looked it out and he wrote it about the death of his own father. It's called Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night. And he powerfully expresses this deep sense of resistance to death as he reflects and thinks about his own father, an old man dying. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. The wise men at their end know dark is right because their words had forked no lightning. They do not go gently into that good night. Good men, the last wave by, crying how bright their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Wild men, who caught and sang the sun in flight and learned too late, they grieved it on its way. Do not go gentle into that good night. Grave men near death, who see with blinding sight, blind eyes could blaze like meteors and be gay, rage, rage against the dying of the light. And you, my father, there on the sad height, curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. That's the natural human condition when it comes to death. We rage against it because we weren't made for it. And in the end, that helps me understand that the the deep struggles and sorrows and anger that we feel at death is not abnormal. It's not unnatural. It is natural. The natural response of human life to death and suffering is to be angry at it, to rage against it. Because that is rooted in the reality that we were made for life. And so much Christian theology and so much modern culture and sociology try to make us sanitise death and welcome it and accept it. When actually the only way to accept it is to rage against it. It's to be honest about how much we hate it and to work out what we want to do. To let our rage and our determination and our resistance rise. And then work out how we use those things to confront death. Later on in the series I will say that the fundamental Christian response with all of this um, unnaturalness of response of our response to death is resurrection. We believe that death doesn't get the last word, but for now, I think we need to allow ourselves to stop and be honest about the fact that so often we don't have a worldview that helps us deal with death. We just keep running away from it. And it's because we've sanitised it, because we've tried to make it so acceptable. Instead, we have to find a way of pausing and acknowledging how we handle death. And that's where, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I think we need a theology of suffering, a theology of pain, a theology of death that isn't a formal theodicy. It's not an academic paper worked out somewhere that is pushed into human practice. But it starts with the reality of death and moves us into how we deal with it. And that then moves us back into um, theory and practice. And that moves us back into living better. 
I'm a practical theologian. I believe that we must deal with what God is saying to us in circumstances, in life, and allow that to shape what we think alongside Scripture. And then that shapes us into being people who can live more fully. As a pastor, I have witnessed the strongest Christians raging in defiance and resistance to death. Not because they're weak, but because it is an inherent part of being human. We run from death because we were made for life. And at the heart of Christian faith is this deep commitment to life. And to holding on to it, to cherishing it. All the way back at the beginning of the story in Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 and 28. We read that God creates us in his image. And that image is an image of life. It's an image of fruitfulness. It's an image of flourishing. The idea is picked up again in Genesis chapter 2 verses 4 to 9. Let me read it to you. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground, but a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This whole story rebounds with life. God creating it. God enabling humankind to enjoy it. God giving us responsibility in it. In Genesis chapter 2 verses 15 and 17 we have that similar picture of us entering into the fullness of life we're given permission to eat from the tree of life but not from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil life to be alive sits at the heart of us as a human instinct because it's a god-given instinct and it reflects god's life in us ecclesiastes a, a, a book later in the bible probably written by solomon says that in verse chapter 3 verse 11 that God has placed eternity in our hearts there's an inherent human tilt toward living and away from dying which is why we find it so difficult to deal with death God has made us image bearers or as Michael Heiser describes us God imagers we carry his life and all around us in the biblical picture and in Christian and Jewish theology is this idea of Loving life, holding on to it, enjoying it, entering into it. Life is a gift to us. Life reminds us of our dependency upon God and life reminds us of our being created for community. And yet death robs us. It takes away that gift. Death makes us feel as if we are cut off. Our sense of community is broken. Death feels as if our dependency is gone. Death bites into our inherent desire to flourish. Death bites into our inherent need to hope with the teeth of despair. Death bites into our need of 
togetherness in community with a sense of separation and isolation and being cut off. That's why we hate it. And that's why in Jesus' ministry, when his friend dies, he weeps. Because death hurts us. Being made for life means that when death visits us, it's painful. It's difficult. We don't know how to cope with it. It's a hard and a difficult thing. And the picture of death that begins in Genesis chapter 3 is inferred rather than spoken after Adam and Eve have to make garments out of animal skins to cover their nakedness and their shame. You could say that humankind starts running from light, from death in that moment and we've been running ever since. In Genesis 4, Cain kills his brother Abel. In Genesis 5 and 11, lifespans seem to narrow. In Genesis 6 through to 10, death becomes part of the destructive life cycle of the generations of Noah. In Genesis 19, death enters society. In Genesis 27, Abraham's death is recorded. Sarah's death is recorded in Genesis chapter 23. The horrific rape of Dinah and the retribution that follows is recorded in Genesis 34. Isaac dies in Genesis 35. Joseph dies in Genesis 37. Er dies in Genesis 38. And the consequences are profound. Human beings run from death. We don't like it. The Bible brims with stories of death, but it brims with stories of mourning at death. Of how human beings resist it. Let me give you just one person as an example and two powerful stories from his life. It's King David. David has a child with Bathsheba and the child die, child falls ill and dies. David is desperate for the little boy not to die. And in, Genesis, in 2 Samuel 12 verses 16 to 18, we read this. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. The elders of his house stood beside him, urging him to rise from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And what happens in that moment? David is pleading for life, pleading for healing, and the child dies. And when the officials go to tell him, they're frightened of how David will respond. They're, they're worried that he is going to be angry. Here's what we read in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 20 to 23. Then David rose from the ground, washed, anointed himself and changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house and when asked, they set food before him and he ate it. Then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while it was alive. But when the child died, you rose and ate food. He said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Here's a man who is grappling with the pain and the heartbreak of death as he pleads for his boy not to die. And yet has also found a way of living in trust with God. At the same time as living with his pain. I shall not go to him but he shall come to me. Some years later another of David's sons Absalom dies. And David's relationship with death is shown again in honesty and complexity. 
The rawness of his response to Absalom's death is so profoundly moving. You can read about it in 2 Samuel 18, 33 through to 2 Samuel 19, 4. The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. Would I have died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. It was told to Joab, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the troops. For the troops heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. The troops stole into the city that day as soldiers steal in the as soldiers steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. And the king covered his face and the king cried with a, cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, oh Absalom, my son, my son. That's what grief makes you feel like. It is profoundly, profoundly breaking. It makes us inconsolable at times. And we don't run from it. We learn to resist it. We learn to engage with it. David's weeping at Absalom's death isn't an acceptance of death. It's a cry against it from the hollows of his soul. David gets through his grief, but his heartbreak is indisputable. The only thing that he can do is give voice to his pain, to his loss, to his sadness and to his despair. I wonder when David wrote Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I looked at it in the last episode. Even when I pass through the darkest valley, the valley of the shadow of death, you're with me. Was it as a young man looking after sheep or was it as an old man as he approached his own death? I don't know the answer. But the same man who wept for his baby boy and was devastated at the loss of his adult son was able to declare that God was with him when he walked through the valley of the shadow of death. Despite the reality of his heartbreak and his sorrow, he was able to declare somehow his trust in God. That is faith. Not a pretense of getting over a loss, not having to pretend to be perfect, not having all the answers, but being able to be undone. Living with the squatter of death means that we can bring God our anger, our frustration, our questions, our pain and our heartbreak. We can bring him our unanswered questions, our devastation. We don't have to have it all knit together in a complete answer that sorts out everybody's intellectual inquiry. The squatter of death is to be resisted and we can be honest about how we feel. There are three stories in the New Testament or three examples of resisting this death in the New Testament that I find really helpful. The first is from St Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, that great chapter about death and resurrection. But in verse 26, Paul says this, when the last enemy is defeated, death. The last enemy to be defeated is death. Christ has defeated it, but we haven't yet. We still live on this side of it. So when we lose somebody, we rage against it because it's our enemy. We're supposed to rage against it. The tone of the passage is seeing death as an enemy and being honest about that. The second is in the ministry of Jesus. We are consistently presented with the Saviour who has come to release us from the snares of death, from the fear of death, from the threat of death. And he describes the father of death, Satan, as a thief, a liar and a destroyer in John chapter 10, verse 10. 
The thief comes to kill, to steal and to destroy. But I have come that you might have life. Death may be our enemy and we resist it. We run from it and we hate it. But we do hold on to a greater power than that. And that is Christ who can transform it. But we have to be able to be honest about it first. I have discovered in my own life that my antagonism toward death and my hatred of it is rooted in my God-given yearning for life. The church may need me to apologise for it, but God doesn't. There is nothing that is able to defeat this fear in me or overcome it other than the resurrection of Jesus Christ and ultimately his lordship. And that brings me to the third part of the story at the very end of the Bible. In Revelation chapter 1 we read this in verse 17. As Jesus' angel speaks to John, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I was dead, and see, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Ultimately, we are promised hope through resurrection. But we have to somehow learn what it is to be able to stand in the presence of our death, our sorrow and our heartbreak and acknowledge that we resist it. Yes, we know the victory of resurrection, but we still feel the pain of sorrow. And living with death as a squatter helps us to be honest about that. As I bring this episode to a close, I want to acknowledge that people who are Christians don't sorrow as others who are without hope, but we still sorrow. To have lost someone that you love is to have lost one of the greatest gifts, one of the greatest heartbreaks, we don't wallow in our grief and loss, but we mustn't run away from it too quickly. We don't minimise it, but nor do we exploit it. As a pastor, I have found that the best way to help those I shepherd is to allow them to be broken. Their sorrow itself is a gift that they can give to God. John Ruskin, the famous 19th century art critic, also loved the Bible he grew up in an evangelical family and left evangelicalism and became quite liberal, I guess the modern word would be, in his adult life. But he loved the scriptures and he would write it and recite them and write notes in the, the uh, margins of his Bibles in Hebrew and Greek. And he describes every human being as having a torn manuscript for the soul. He understood that human experience could be exegeted, that there was a way of making connections between people that could help us understand ourselves. And he said that we had to learn to read the torn manuscripts of the human soul. And I think one of the greatest terrors in our souls is the terror that is left by sorrow. When I use the word terror, I'm aware that there are two ways of pronouncing that word, T-E-A-R. There is tear as in rip. But there's also tear as in tear that drops from our eyes. And it seems to me that both are true in our grief and loss. Our lives are ripped apart. And on this side of our own death we feel that that rip can never be fixed. It might feel like more than we can endure. And yet we learn to endure it somehow. Our loss also brings tears to our lives. We weep with a profound sense of loss and pain. We want the world to stop. We feel as if it should. Because we are angry at death. But being honest about our anger 
is a step toward dealing with it properly. And responding to the fact that the world that we think should stop when somebody dies doesn't is what we will look at in the next episode of this Good Grief series. But we can be honest with our grief. We can bring our anger, our pain and our sorrow to God. And if you're listening to this podcast and wondering what to do, you may not feel as if you can bring God praise and thanks and worship. So let your gift to him today be your pain. Let your tears, your sorrow and your heartbreak tumble out before him. Let God take the anger and the frustration that you feel and watch how he can transform it in time by his grace.